0: is Crimes of the Centuries. Arthur Freed should have been right behind his wife, her brother, and her brother's wife. Those three were in one car while Arthur was in his own, having retrieved it from his mom's house after a trip to the movies. But after the trio arrived at Arthur's apartment, he didn't show. So they waited and waited until finally at 1.30 in the morning, they alerted police that something must have happened to Arthur. Seriously, they said he was right behind us. He was following us to his place. A couple of hours later, Arthur's nerve-wracked wife got a phone call. She didn't recognize the man's voice, but he assured her he was a friend of Arthur's and don't worry, Arthur just had a bit too much to drink and decided to sleep it off. He'll be home in the morning. This didn't do much to calm his wife because Arthur didn't drink, period. She had reason to worry. Arthur was heir to a sand and gravel company worth a fair bit of money. And this was December 1937, right in the midst of a mostly forgotten period in American history that one author dubbed the Kidnap Years. It would be months before the Freed family figured out what had happened to Arthur. Arthur Freed was from a big family as one of eight children born to Joseph and Emma Freed. Fairly atypical for the time, Emma hadn't had her first child until she was 31 years old. Her last, her daughter Anna, was born when Emma was about 47 years old. Arthur, as the second youngest of the kids, had come four years earlier, around 1905. Emma and husband Joseph had started a little later in life, relatively speaking, because neither had been born in America. Joseph was from Austria, Emma from Czechoslovakia. Both came to New York in 1890 and started their family a few years after they settled. Joseph, for a while, was in the trucking industry and owned the Freed Service Garage in Manhattan, according to the 1925 census. At that point, most of the family's children worked in the garage with their father, as did two boarders who apparently lived with the Freeds at 530 East 71st Street. The only two in the household who apparently didn't work in the garage were Mom Emma, listed as housewife, and daughter Anna, who was still a student. In June of 1929, life got a bit complicated for the Freed family. Two of Arthur's older brothers, Hugo and Richard, were arrested and convicted of conspiring to orchestrate a fake holdup involving $9,000 worth of silk hosiery. Both were sentenced to two to four years in Sing Sing and ordered to pay a $1,000 fine. While two of their sons were in prison, Joseph and Emma moved to a house on Soundview Avenue in White Plains, New York. If you aren't familiar with that, Berg, writer Sarah Weinman explains that it's
1: just a bit north of New York City.
0: Weinman wrote about this case for Curbed, part of New York Magazine. You'll be hearing from her throughout this episode. The Freed family overall seemed to be doing well financially. Joseph shifted from his garage-slash-trucking business to heading up two different companies— the Empire Sand and Gravel Company, and also Joseph Fried & Sons, a Bronx cinder company. Joseph was well-connected, too. Several of his boys ended up working at Colonial Sand & Stone, a company controlled by a prominent Italian newspaper publisher. Arthur was one of those kids. By 1937, he managed the company's Bronx office. Things should have been going well for the Freeds, but Richard and Hugo's arrests marked the beginning of a dark period in all of their lives. The two brothers would have still been serving their sentences when their father died suddenly in 1931. Emma took the family reins.
1: Emma lived not only in wealth, but she had a whole thing where every Saturday night the kids would assemble for sort of the family dinner.
0: But Hugo was resistant to the whole living on the straight and arrow thing. He was the problem child in the family, though not a child anymore. By the time his dad had died, he was 37 years old. Three years later, in 1934, he was caught selling 138 cases of stolen Camel cigarettes worth more than $7,000. For that, he spent another couple of years behind bars. Arthur had no such trouble. He made a decent living at his job. He was husband to a woman named Gertrude and father to an eight-year-old son named Arlen. Aside from his dad having died years earlier, life was pretty normal on December 4th, 1937, when mom Emma hosted one of
1: her weekly family dinners. That Saturday night, he and his wife and his brother-in-law and sister-in-law had been at the family dinner, and then they went to a movie. Instead
0: of taking two cars to the theater, they piled into Arthur's brother-in-law's car and left
1: his back at his mom's. So after the movie was over... They all drove back together and dropped Arthur off because he said, I have to go get my car, and then I'll meet up with you at the brother and sister-in-law's house later.
0: Because they were all headed to the same destination, no one thought twice about Arthur's wife staying in her brother's car. After all, Arthur was right behind them. He never made it. Now, as I mentioned at the top, the family was concerned straight away and called police around 1.30 a.m. Two hours later, Arthur's car was found in the parking lot of a bar. And then
1: some witnesses stepped forward. There were some teens who were in the vicinity and they saw this guy in his car and then they saw him being forced out and put into another car. And they didn't fully know what to make of it.
0: On Sunday afternoon, the telephone at Emma's house on Soundview rang. Hugo, the oldest brother, answered. He was told to go to a certain bar in Manhattan where he would find a note hidden on a shelf in the washroom. Hugo did as instructed and found a note demanding $200,000 for Arthur's return and providing instructions on how to contact the kidnappers. The note warned Hugo not to alert authorities or media and to go outside and burn the letter in front of the saloon. The way that last instruction was worded made Hugo think someone must be nearby watching to make sure he did it, so he shoved the letter in his pocket but took the envelope outside and performatively burned it in front of the saloon. Somehow, all of this stayed a secret from news media, at least initially then, a few days into the ordeal, the story was leaked. And the repercussions were far worse than anything the Freeds could have ever predicted. When you flip through newspapers looking for stories about Arthur Freed's 1937 kidnapping, you're reminded that holy hell were there a lot of kidnappings in the 1930s it was no coincidence that this was happening during the great depression from a documentary
1: bad times had arrived without warning after a decade of expanding prosperity almost overnight the wall street crash of 1929 shattered america's confidence in its economy
0: people were desperate and people were cynical that's a bad combination because cynicism and spite make it easier for us humans to look at other people not as fellow humans, but as obstacles. So take this scenario, described by sports writer Marty Glickman in an ABC documentary called The Century.
1: My family had exhausted all its credits with the local merchants. And uh, on one occasion, uh, my father came home and asked what was for dinner that night. And uh, my mother said... There's nothing. Uh, how 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 could that, that be? How could there be nothing?
0: You know how the pandemic has hit people in different ways. Some people, mostly people who had financial cushions before the whole mess started, have fared okay. Some have even done well. People who didn't have the luxury of flush savings accounts have been, of course, hit far harder. As tough as it is right now, it's nothing compared to the Great Depression, because our banks are at least insured. They're not failing. The people with money saved are dipping into the savings, which stings, sure, but the savings exist. So imagine most of the country, even people who had worked hard, who had skipped out on vacations and fancy furniture so they could save for a rainy decade, lost everything, practically overnight. Imagine how unfair it must have seemed to them when they spotted someone who hadn't been leveled by the economy. Historian Jeffrey Parrott. There was a janitor called George Gellies who had $1,000 in the Bank of the United States. It had taken Gellies 40 years to save $1,000. After spending two nights and two days in the pouring rain outside this shuttered, locked bank, beating, literally beating on the walls with his hands in frustration, he realized he was never going to see 10 cents of his money. And he went back to the basement where he lived and he hanged himself in despair. That's what bank failures did. They crushed tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of ordinary people like
1: George Galley's.
0: In short, the Great Depression triggered in people a sense of desperation injustice that they had never known before. And remember the rampant corruption that went hand in hand with prohibition in the previous decade? That didn't just disappear overnight, so there was a lot of lingering disregard of the law. All of this blended together made it seem that anyone with even a bit of money was fair game to be ripped from the streets and held for ransom. And so were their kids. Journalist Sarah Weinman
1: again. This is only a few years removed from... Charles Lindbergh and Ann Lindbergh's son, Charles Jr., being kidnapped and murdered. And there was this whole spate of kidnappings for ransom that was happening all across the country.
0: The late author David Stout wrote about this in a book called The Kidnap Years, the astonishing true history of the forgotten epidemic that shook Depression-era America. Several of these cases could serve as future Crimes of the Century's tales, though there's one in particular that has been on my to-do list that strangely intersects with the Freed case. In fact, this other case and Arthur Freed shared space on the same page of the St. Louis Star Times on December 7th, 1937. The Freed headline was, G-Men Join Hunt for New Yorker, Deny Kidnapping. The headline next to it read, Fate of Chicago Man Kidnapped Nine Weeks Ago Is Still a Mystery. The victim in that case was a man named Charles Ross. If the name sounds oddly familiar, that might be because in season one, I covered the infamous kidnapping case of four-year-old Charlie Ross in 1874, which is considered America's first kidnapping. Charles Ross was of no relation. The Star Time story began, quote, Nine weeks and three days ago, Charles S. Ross, 72, a slim, gray-haired man who had retired with a comfortable fortune, was kidnapped by three men. Although a $50,000 ransom was paid October 8th for his release, he's still missing. His wife believes he is dead. End quote. This Charles Ross had worked for decades as a greeting cards manufacturer and retired with a healthy bank account. His kidnapping, like Arthur Freed's a couple of months later, occurred on a Saturday night. Instead of random teenagers having witnessed this one, however, Ross's ordeal was reported by a woman he employed as a secretary, which might seem odd in retirement, but that's how rich people roll. Regardless, Florence Freehage was riding in a car with Ross on a lonely road at the outskirts of the city, according to a Wire story, when three men armed with guns seized Ross, robbed him, and announced that he was to come with them, per orders of their boss. Like Freed, Ross was yanked from his car and forced into the kidnappers. They left his secretary behind with Ross's car keys so she could drive away and call police as soon as she could. Mrs. Ross was beside herself. She and her husband had big plans pending. They were going to Australia the next summer, a retirement trip they'd planned for years. But she took some comfort in knowing that her husband was the type who would cooperate easily. She told reporters, hell, he might even be playing bridge with the kidnappers right now. Police were certain a ransom demand would follow, and a few days after the kidnapping, it did. Mrs. Ross paid, but then nothing. His wife feared the worst because her husband had a heart condition and high blood pressure, and no proof of life had been delivered since his kidnapping. His wife, unfortunately, was right, though she wouldn't know it for another month. The ransom money had been marked, so FBI followed its trail from Chicago to Los Angeles, where they arrested a man who said his name was Peter Anders, who confessed that two days after he got the ransom money, he killed not just Ross, but also a man named James Atwood Gray, who had helped Anders with the kidnapping. Most kidnappings didn't end the way the Ross case did, however. If they did, people wouldn't pay the ransoms. Usually what would happen is someone would be kidnapped, a ransom demand was made, the demand might be out of the family's reach, and so the two sides would negotiate. If you're curious why hardcore kidnappers would be willing to negotiate, so was I. I think
1: they just wanted money, and they just, you know, these guys were not very smart.
0: They probably weren't that hardcore either. They were mostly gamblers, trying like hell to make it through the Depression, and they'd often take whatever money they could get. That was true of Anders, who spent some of his ill-gotten money on pony races. Now, where this case intersects with the Freed case is that the FBI questioned Anders because they thought the cases sounded similar enough that follow-up was warranted. Anders insisted he had nothing to do with Freed's disappearance. By the way, it turned out Anders was a pseudonym for a criminal named John Henry Seedland, whom J. Edgar Hoover called the nation's cruelest criminal. He pleaded guilty and died in the electric chair July 14, 1938. He was 27 years old. Now, because it was pretty common for kidnapped victims to be released, the Freeds didn't want to piss off the kidnappers in this case. The note Hugo got said, don't alert the feds. G-Men were making headlines left and right getting involved in these cases, which, since the Baby Lindbergh kidnapping, fell under federal jurisdiction if it was suspected that the kidnappers had crossed state lines at any point. Apparently, Arthur's kidnappers didn't want that much heat. Problem was, the family had alerted police before they got the note telling them not to do so. So something odd happened, and the first news stories about Arthur's disappearance... His family denied that it was a kidnapping at all. Reporters have police sources saying, yes, it is. Yet family members saying, no, Arthur and his wife actually got in a spot Saturday night. And he just went on a bender. We're sure he'll be back soon. Meanwhile, they
1: were fielding phone calls from the kidnappers. Over the next couple of weeks, there's like 34 phone calls in all. And at first, they say, we have... Arthur and we want a $200,000 ransom. And they're like, we have no, we don't have this money. And then the ransom gets knocked down, but nothing comes of it.
0: The Freeds weren't nearly as wealthy as some people must have thought. According to one report, they told the kidnappers they were only able to scrounge together $1,800. And the kidnappers said, fine, we'll take it. So the drop off was to go like this, Hugo, Arthur's older brother, was to take the $1,800 to Lowe's Commodore Theater at 6th Street and 2nd Avenue. He was to enter the theater smoking a cigar, then wait by the public phone for a call. When the call came, Hugo was told to go to balcony exit 25, step to the fire escape, and throw the package of money as far as he could. These details come from a 1960 retrospective written by legendary New York journalist Ruth Reynolds. Hugo was ready to toss the money as requested, but first he demanded that he be given some kind of proof that Arthur was still alive. Nothing came, so he bailed. At this point, it was December 17th. Arthur had been missing about two weeks, and no one had heard a word from him since. After Hugo Freed aborted the ransom drop, the phone calls from the kidnappers ceased, and the Freeds stopped pretending in the media that Arthur was on a bender. Not only had he been kidnapped, they admitted, but they were pretty sure he'd been killed. That's the only conclusion they could reach. If he were alive, surely he would have figured out some way to contact his wife and son. That spring, a man named Benjamin Farber was kidnapped and released for a $1,900 ransom. It was over and done with so quickly that it never even made the newspapers. But the FBI was involved from the start. Agents suspected that kidnapping was somehow related to Freed's, but Benjamin was so rattled by the experience, he couldn't give
1: them any details. So nothing much really happens until the summer of 38, when a 19-year-old boy named Norman Miller is off to the movies with his best buddy Sidney Lair. and Norman is home from Franklin and Marshall College which is in and around Pennsylvania and by home he's home in like deep Brooklyn so they go to a movie on their way home they get into the car and there's like one guy on one side of the car one guy on the other side of the car and there are these running boards and Norman is trying to drive and that's you know and he manages to drive a little bit but the kidnappers catch up with him and you know, put a gun in his face.
0: Norman and Sidney, both age 19, were bound and gagged. Because there had been so many high-profile kidnappings, they realized quickly what was happening to them. And Norman knew why.
1: His father, Charles, let's just say that he didn't always operate on the legal side of the ledger. So he was likely to know some pretty shady people. And Norman knew that. So... He was a smart kid and thought, I better just pay attention to the best of my ability and remember every little detail that I can.
0: And they retained a lot of details.
1: So this is how we know that, for example, at around 12.45 a.m. or thereabouts, a Tisket-A-Tasket, which was a Tommy Dorsey band hit, was playing on the radio because Norman heard it and remembered it. This is how we know that the car it crossed some bridge, which he was pretty sure it was the Williamsburg Bridge, just based on how long it took.
0: They noticed that when they finally reached their destination, they were led upstairs. At some point the next morning, they heard church bells. One of the kidnappers mentioned wanting to leave for a bit to see a movie. At one point,
1: he hears the unmistakable sound of essentially billiard balls on a pool table. And that's how he figures out, oh, I must be somewhere that's like, kind of speakeasy-ish, but not sure. This would
0: have all been useless, of course, had Norman and Sidney been among the slain kidnap victims. But they weren't. Sidney was released to relay a ransom demand to Norman's family. Soon after, Norman's father, Charles, put $13,000 in a garbage can and followed directions until he found Norman sitting on another garbage can. His son's eyes were still taped shut. Thanks to the details Norman was able to give police, They figured out that the hideout had been within a half hour's drive of the kidnapping spot. The territory was divvied into sections, and agents fanned out to find a place near a movie theater, a church, and a billiard parlor. Sidney and Norman also relayed that they were pretty sure the kidnapping car had been a 1937 Packard Club Coupe. Police searched and found that such a car was owned by a guy named Dennis Gula who happened to operate a place called Ukrainian Hall, a sort of dance and bar dive on 6th Street near a church, which also happened to be near the theater where Hugo Fried had been instructed to toss Arthur's ransom money. FBI agents were dubious that Dennis Gula was their guy, though. They suspected the real culprit was his son, Demetrius, who went by the name Danny, and liked to bet on horses with his friends John Verga and William Jackness. On October 28, 1938, the FBI rounded up the three men and, according to Ruth Reynolds' story, quote, Jackness folded at once, end quote. The kidnapping ring was even bigger than the agents had realized. Two more men, Ignacio Russo and Joseph Sakota, who went by his middle name Steve, rounded out a quintet.
1: It goes without saying that all of these guys had criminal records. Almost all of them had served time in Sing Sing. I believe William Jackness had known Charles Miller, who was Norman's father, through some shady means.
0: They targeted each man because his family had criminal ties.
1: For Arthur Freed it was his brother Hugo. In fact, they didn't actually intend to kidnap Arthur. They were gunning for his brother Hugo, who had served time with Steve Sakoda earlier on in the 1930s. And so Sakoda got into his head, well, Hugo's involved with some underworld stuff. He has money. Let's get him. Except they got the wrong brother because the car that they were tracking, it had a slightly different license plate. So it wasn't Hugo that they took. They took Arthur.
0: Like she said, they weren't very smart. And probably some of that wasn't their fault, exactly. I mean, some of it was their upbringing. The first time I found Steve Sakoda mentioned in any newspaper was in 1925, when, at age 14, he was included in a list of boys and men who'd disappeared from their homes. The second time was the following year, when he and another boy were arrested jimmying the lock off a drugstore door. The time after that was a big enough deal that his name was even in the headline. Sakoda admits robbing 10 houses near Vanderveer Park. Apparently, the then 18-year-old had earned himself the moniker of Sheep's Head Bay's Matinee Burglar by robbing houses of money and jewelry while the homes were empty in the mid-afternoon. In 1930, he had a new nickname, Brooklyn's Lone Wolf. He was arrested on suspicion of 25 robberies. His first arrest with Danny Gula came in 1932, when the two were part of a quartet arrested for passing counterfeit money. Sakota had some assaults on his record, but insisted that when he and his compadres kidnapped Arthur Freed, they had no thoughts of killing him, until the story about his kidnapping made the newspapers. And that's why the family had tried to downplay it at first by saying, oh, he just got in a fight with his wife. It's not a kidnapping at all. They had been right to worry.
1: What happened is that Fried had been taken to an apartment that was rented and lived in by Sakoda's girlfriend, Marie Lamont, and a friend of hers. About four days after his kidnapping, when the news became public, one of those kidnappers freaked out and shot him. The one who freaked out and shot him was Steve Sakoda.
0: That's according to Danny Gula, anyway. Sakoda's version is that Gula was the gunman. Whoever had leaked the story to the newspapers had inadvertently signed Arthur Freed's death warrant. After Arthur had been shot, the kidnappers... Had to figure out what to do
1: with the body. So they drove it over to this place in the East Village called Ukrainian Hall, and they take Freed's body to the basement.
0: According to Reynolds' story, they weren't actually sure Freed was just a body at this point. He might have still been alive, but unconscious. Either way, his captors walked him through the bar as though he'd had one too many to drink and made it to the basement without catching anyone's
1: attention. There's a furnace, so they essentially cremate him. And they're, you know, they think that they've gotten rid of everything. But of course, as we all know, when you incinerate a body, there are still fragments left over.
0: Those fragments ultimately helped substantiate the kidnapper's confessions which prosecutors needed because those confessions were quickly recanted. In fact, that was a big focus of the subsequent trial. Sokota said he was in a fog when he confessed and that in reality, he'd never even met Arthur Freed, much less killed him. Gulas said the FBI agents who interrogated him used medieval torture to put
1: words into his mouth. So there's a lot of accusations of police brutality, which I actually believe are true. It's the 1930s. It's long before Miranda. It's long before anything Supreme Court-wise is codified how to deal with suspects. I also believe fully that these guys were guilty of the crime.
0: Both things can be true, after all. Police could have tortured confessions out of guilty men. The public didn't have much sympathy for someone slapped around when that someone was believed to have murdered an innocent man. Even the way the police brutality stories were reported was telling. One was titled, G-Men Deny Beating Kidnapping Suspects. So the government's denial was right in the headline. And because this was so soon after the Baby Lindbergh case, there was an interesting twist. That high-profile case had changed a lot of laws, including the one mentioned earlier that made interstate kidnapping a federal crime. But that wasn't the only change. Several states put new laws on the books, too. And in New York, there was a law for some six years that said if you're convicted of kidnapping someone and that someone isn't found by trial's end, well, that someone was assumed to be dead, which meant your kidnapping conviction was really on par
1: with a murder conviction. It just meant that there was a whole period of time when people who were not charged with murder could be executed.
0: It was eventually repealed, but it still stood as of late 1939, when Sakota and Gula were on trial for Freed's kidnapping. Gula and Sakota didn't want to die. The trial turned contentious as they continued to allege that they'd been beaten by the G-men, who were celebrated almost daily in newspapers nationwide.
1: And then J. Edgar Hoover himself is a rebuttal witness to say, oh no, my men would never do this. And of course, who are they going to believe? Like the guy who's on trial for kidnapping or the head of the FBI? So this does not go well. Sakoda and Gula are convicted in late 1939. And because of the time period, the, the right to a speedy trial actually resulted in a fairly speedy trial. So the bone fragments were found in November of 38. And by the end of 39, Sakota and Gula are convicted.
0: The others in the kidnapping ring were convicted too, but only Sakota and Gula were directly tied to Freed's kidnapping specifically, which meant they were also the only two to face the death penalty, which they got. In January 1940, so just a couple of months after their convictions, Sakota and Gula were scheduled to die in the electric chair in what newspapers described as the year's first mass execution. The men asked for clemency, but J. Edgar Hoover told reporters that it was just a ruse to buy more time. Meanwhile, Sokota's girlfriend, a waitress named Marie Lamont, visited him 39 times as he awaited execution. Reporters said she tried to convince him to tell authorities everything about the kidnapping ring, including any as-of-yet unnamed accomplices, but he refused. One story read, quote, even the hysterical tears of Marie Lamont, the girl who has loyally gone to see him 39 times during his 11 months in the death house, failed to make a squealer out of stolid Joseph Sakota. quote. Authorities had hoped that one of the men would answer a few lingering questions, like whether the ring had been part of other high-profile disappearances. For example...
1: A 12-year-old boy in New Rochelle named Peter Levine had been kidnapped, and then his torso was found some months later, and it's still never been solved. And for a while, the FBI thought that that kidnapping and murder was related to what happened to Arthur Freed and Norman Miller and Farber, but they ruled it out. So officially, the case is still unsolved. And when Peter's father died, it actually mentioned that you know, he had a son, Peter, whose torso was found in the river, and the case has never been solved. And I was like, this is the saddest open I've ever... <laughs> but this is what I mean, that this story just led me down so many different tangential rabbit holes, because the investigators themselves were falling down these rabbit holes trying to figure out what happened.
0: Another heartbreaking case came two days after Christmas in 1936, when 10-year-old Charles Matson was kidnapped from his own living room in Tacoma, Washington, The poor kid was eating popcorn and drinking root beer with his older brother and sister when he was nabbed by an armed man who left behind a ransom note demanding $28,000 for the kid's safe return. Charles' dad had been a University of Washington football player before becoming a prominent physician and surgeon in Tacoma. It was no secret that Dr. William Matson was quite rich. His family lived in a 6,400-square-foot mansion. Despite the doctor being more than willing to pay the ransom, Charles was killed anyway. A hunter found his battered body about two weeks after he'd disappeared. It's likely that this case and the Peter Levine case were separate incidents, but we'll never know for sure. When Sakota and Gula died January 12th, it marked the first time anyone had been executed in New York for a crime other than first-degree murder. According to the New York Daily News, Gula was killed first.
1: And it's described that Gula went in smirking and Sakota was, like, very upset.
0: It's possible the New York Daily News was embellishing a bit. Shocking, I know. Because others described both men as somber. Fun fact, the Associated Press has for decades been assured a spot as a media witness in executions, a job the agency takes very seriously, which is something I know because I helped cover two such executions. The AP reporter who watched Sakota and Gula die wrote that Sakota prayed until the end, while Gula maintained his innocence. I'm going to burn for nothing, he said before his final walk. I never killed anybody. Kidnapping cases, of course, have never disappeared, but the aftermath of the Freed kidnapping did seem to mark a turning point in the insane spate apparently sparked by the Great Depression. Whether that was because of Hoover and his G-men's high-profile pursuit of the cases, or simply the improved economy finally bringing the Depression to a close, well, that part's up for debate. To research this story, I interviewed journalist and author Sarah Weinman, whose most recent book is Scoundrel, How a Convicted Murderer Persuaded the Women Who Loved Him, the Conservative Establishment, and the Courts to Set Him Free. The rest of the research was through contemporary news stories and census data. I want to mention, too, that there's another book about this kidnapping era called The Snatch Racket by Carolyn Cox that I haven't read yet, but I might Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.